right. Are we on? There we are. Um, if you want a Bible, there's a little pile. There's one there. I don't think I ever got around to making a little pile there as well. No, there's just a pile there. So um, feel free to grab a Bible. This is Isaiah part 3. And the end of it, which is ridiculous. How could you do Isaiah in three little parts? But it's a little taster, taster session. We'll be getting there shortly in our daily readings. Um, so you can soak up more of it then. First of all, picture the scene. Imagine it's a hot day, another country a long time ago. It's a Saturday, so you're going down to the synagogue as you do. And everyone is there, anyone who's anyone is there at the synagogue in Nazareth on this particular Saturday. And um, as everyone's sort of crowding in, uh, you notice um, that that guy, that young man, uh, Joseph's son, he's, he's come back. And you've heard a few rumors about this guy. And you think, um, yeah, it's true, he does look a bit too, bit too self-assured. But it just so happens that he's the one who's being passed the great big Isaiah scroll this day. And you don't know whether he's allowed to do this, but he turns um, right near the back of the scroll. And then he looks up at everyone. And with that self-assured way that he seems to have, he starts reading. And he says, the spirit of the Lord, of the sovereign Lord, is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blinds, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Everyone in the synagogue is completely silent. goes back, he takes his seat. Everyone's eyes are on him. What did he mean by saying this me? What did he mean by turning to that bit at the end? And he breaks the silence. And he looks up with some fire in his eyes and he says, today these scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. What a moment. Wouldn't it have been cool to be there? There is something about Isaiah that is fundamental to Jesus' understanding of who he is himself. There's something about our understanding Isaiah that's fundamental to us understanding Jesus. And that's the point of tonight. Um, I've got two moments of silliness for you, um, just to keep you going. Uh, the, the first one we'll get to shortly. The second one um, uh, is a little um, thing we did as the, you know, the kids slot you do in the morning. And by popular demand, we're going to have another crack at it this evening. But we will save that. Save that. Anticipate. Anticipation is half the joy, they say. Anyway, um, first moment of silliness. I'd like you, you've got one minute to, um, you can do this on your own if you find it awkward to talk to other people in moments like this. I used to hate it when people do this, so I apologise if you're like me and you don't really like this sort of thing. But your favourite Disney Pixar movie, Frozen, is not a Disney Pixar movie, I'm afraid, Rob. Genuine Pixar we're looking for, just to narrow the, the bands. One minute just to discuss with your friends, person nearby, what and why. <laughs> Off you go.
let's bring it back in. I'm hearing a few Toy Stories being whispered. Um, fair enough. Josh, what was your favourite? Ratatouille. That's a strong content. That's that's almost correct. It is almost correct. The, uh, my favourite is Monsters Inc. Um, I think it's absolutely genius. Dom's with me. Um, the concept of Monsters Inc. Here it is. Um, if you um, live some culturally impoverished life and you haven't seen Monsters Inc., um, let me explain it. The, um, there's these doors. There's this parallel world, first of all, um, the monster world. And there are these doors within the monster world, of course. And they, these doors get activated uh, primarily, normally, these doors. Um, they get activated and they act as these portals into our human world. And um, most often they are the doors in the human world of a child's bedroom closet. Why? Because the monsters are in the business of collecting um, human screams. So they go through these doors, activate the doors, make it into a portal into the child's bedroom. Ah! Collect the scream in these yellow canisters. Why? Because the screams are what power the monster world. And so the whole energy industry in Monster World is about harvesting these, these screams. I think it's genius because anyone who's been around a young kid for any length of time knows the power, the innate power of a human scream. Children learn this early on. Um, scream, a scream is a powerful thing. It's what powers the monster world. The question for tonight is what powers this world? What, has, what really has the power to get things done? in this world, actually move things forward, actually get results. The book of Isaiah has an extraordinary answer to this. A um, bit of background on Isaiah, we've got a little timeline to help us with this. There are three, um, actually three main contributors, it seems, to the book of Isaiah, because in the whole sort of timeline of things going on, the first 39 chapters, um, as we looked at last week, are set in the 8th century um, BC. Isaiah um, this prophet in Jerusalem speaking to kings and crowds, um, Ahaz and Hezekiah, uh, we read about. Um, this was all going on in the 8th century BC. Uh, chapters 40 to 55 seem to be set in the 6th century BC. A very different context, very different situation that it's speaking into. It references um, King Cyrus of Persia, who is 6th century um, that's going on, and then the, those last chapters again are speaking into a different context again. The prophets, Isaiah included, often go on a lot about judgment. Um, why is that? Uh, what's, their <laughs> what's, what's their problem? Um, to understand why um, books like Isaiah have a lot of judgment coming in them, you've got to appreciate the wider story. And so it all begins uh, back in the day with Abraham when God is uh, calling choosing Abraham and saying he's going to bless him and his family at the point of blessing them. God's purpose in all of that is to bring his blessing to all people. This family find themselves um, enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh, let my people go. Eventually, um, all the plagues and stuff, they come out in most dramatic fashion, liberated to be this nation, to be something different. And Exodus um, happens about here in the whole sweep of things. Uh, this Exodus out of Egypt, this liberation out of slavery. And when they get out, Mount Sinai and all that, uh, God meets with the people and makes with them these big promises again that they're going to be um, his people. They're going to be set apart, a holy nation, his cherished, uh, treasured possession. 
And they're all about, it's all about reflecting his goodness into the world. Again, with David, there's further promises uh, that come in. The thing is, this sort of marriage agreement, this covenant is the word that you'll see in the Old Testament for this. Uh, Israel doesn't keep its side of the bargain. The people of God, the, the family of Abraham, unfaithful, pretty much. Um, you know, there's, there's glimpses of, of uh, faithfulness and, and living up to this lofty vocation and all the, the purposes and plans to be this special, holy, different people. But on the whole, it's a story of failure and unfaithfulness. And so the prophets come in and say, remember the covenant. Remember who we are, who we're supposed to be. We're losing it, we're going off on one, come on. So that's their, their sort of message. And failure to respond to that prophetic message results in judgment. That's why the judgment comes eventually in the year 587 uh, in the, the, um, for Jerusalem. This judgment comes as Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, marches into town, uh, ransacks the place, the temple's destroyed, the land is occupied, the king is taken off the throne. Um, this is devastating. If you were there at the time, living into that situation, you'd be, think, you'd be thinking this is all over. It seems like it's all over. The question you'd be asking is, is God still involved with us? Does he still have plans with us? Are the promises that he made still there? Are they still active? And so that's the situation, this complete devastation, this uncertainty, this, this loss of everything that they've been building towards, all the hope, blah, 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 all gone. That's the situation which when we get to chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah, that it's speaking into. And straight away you get some of the most tender words in the whole of the Old Testament. Chapter 40, verse 1, it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And these chapters, 40 to 55, go on uh, to restate hope, to restate that they are still God's people, that he's still involved with them, that his purposes still stand, that his promise over the whole thing still stands true. And it also like, puts in this really lofty hope. Now, as you read through these chapters, you'll be like, goodness me, that is like such a vision of of goodness and hope and, and a sweetness. And there's a real argument to say it was never fulfilled. And like on the argument of um, how most of the prophecy functions, it could, could well have been chucked out as false prophecy. It could never have made it into the Bible. It wasn't just these writings that were written back in the day. Um, but the prophetic writings that were kept on the whole were because they, what they prophesied came true. The judgment that they talked about happened. It's like, oh, okay. Um, this, this one guy was, was, was onto it, and they'd remember, and it would make it in. This stuff, chapters 40 to 55, doesn't seem to be fulfilled. So it's talking about this sweet um, deliverance, restoration, uh, but then the, the exile did come to an end, year 539, but never anything close to what um, the, the vision uh, that's talked about here. Intriguing, but by the providence of God, it made it in, and you'll see perhaps why. Just a minute. How are you doing? Still with me? Okay. 
we're going to flick through a few more verses in this chapter to see what's going on. There's a mysterious sort of conundrum going on in these verses. As you read through these chapters, you'll see a, a figure called um, the servant uh, talked about. Um, and there's a series of poems within these chapters that talk about the servant, um, what's going on there. Initially, 41 verse 8, it seems pretty clear that the servant is simply Israel, the people of God, the family of Abraham. 41 verse 8, it says, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, the servant, Israel. Similarly, 44 verse 1, same sort of deal. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Jacob, Israel, they're interchangeable. That's the same uh, thing. Israel, the people, this nation, this family, they are the servant, right? Then it gets more complicated, though. Uh, in 49, verse 5, this servant is being talked about in a way that ministers, serves the nation, serves the people uh, itself. Uh, let's read that. 49... What did I say? Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. So it's changed a bit, and the servant isn't just sit straightforwardly the people. It seems to have a role distinct from the, the people. Uh, that goes on then into 53. You know, the, um, you know all the chapters in our Bibles, they were put in you know, way after um, the, the stuff was written. <laughs> where, where chapter 3 was put in was a real case of the person who was doing it um, falling asleep at the wheel on the job because the, the whole section starts 52 verse 13. And there's this big long poem right through to the end of 53. And um, just listen to some of this stuff. Uh, so it starts 52 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Uh, verse 4 Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we were considered, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was upon him, that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. And it goes on and goes on and goes on. And there's this role, this kind of suffering, but taking something that should have belonged to everybody else, onto himself. Um, and this remarkable kind of picture that's going on here. Why is it so remarkable? As the author of these chapters, speaking into this broken, devastated situation, um, as, he's, as he's wrestling with these convictions of the promise of God, which somehow he's insisting is still valid, there's this faith in who God is that is bigger than the situation of exile. The ongoing purposes of God that still stand. That's another twin conviction that actually God's not done with this saving, putting everything back together project that he's begun. That this purpose is still going. 
Number three, the complete failure of the people of Israel to do their part in all of these things. He's got these three convictions. And as he's wrestling with them, what he glimpses is something of the solution. And it's remarkable. He glimpses this, this picture that he's sort of articulating in this servant language as it develops, that there will be one who will magnificently restore all things. The one who will get all of this Israel blessing, salvation project back on track. Surely he will be the people's president. Surely he will make America great again. Except that the shape of this vocation is so, so absolutely different to any of your Trumps or your Vladimir Putins or anyone in that long list of sort of strongmen, supermen that go through history. What is it that really gets things done in this world? Isaiah 53 says it's not about bigger walls and better nuclear weapons. It's not even about forcefully insisting on, on our way of things or driving out the, the, the enemy or uh, standing up and not letting anyone uh, hit us and we'll, we'll hit them straight back. None of that stuff. There is something much more powerful than all of that military macho story. Back to Monsters, Inc. And the real genius of Monsters, Inc., I think, is as the plotline develops, and this is a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but I'm sorry. Um, the, the two monsters, Mike and Sully, brilliant characters, Mike and Sully in question, they, um, they discover by accident that this little toddler who's sort of broken into the monster's world, um, that the power of her scream, yeah, is something that's a real kind of force. They've, the whole monster world has been running off this power hey, as long as they've known. Uh, but then suddenly she laughs. And the, the power of the scream pales in comparison with the power of the laughter that just fuses everything in the local area in Monster's Land as this little toddler laughs. And that's the, the genius insight, because yeah, sure, screams, they're powerful, but the power of laughter, the transformative power of laughter is something else entirely for opening up uh, new worlds of possibility. What's glimpsed in Isaiah 53 is something of the transformative power and the wonder of a grace-filled life that is given away the transformative power and the wonder of grace-filled life that's given away. Is there anything like it? So the stage is set after these words have been written for Jesus some 500 years later to pick up the Isaiah scroll. And that day he said, this, this Isaiah vocation that we've read about every year or whenever it came up in their daily readings, uh, this Isaiah vocation today is fulfilled in me. And when he picked up that scroll, he knew where things were heading for him, right? He knew that the road ahead was suffering, and ultimately it was death. If you've got Isaiah 53 open, just turn back to Isaiah 50, and I wonder, here's a thought. There's some more of this servant language here. 
And I wonder if this was the language that might even have sustained Jesus as he went through that most uh, dreadful week, most dreadful, wonderful week, uh, the last bit leading up to his death on the cross. 50 verse 6. I have not drawn back. I've offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. I wonder if those were the the verses that were going through his mind that he was drawing on in those moments. You don't know, but I wonder if it is. Amazing. Seems a bit of a serious moment now, but it is th- the time has come to utterly disrupt whatever thing was going on there with our game of top trumps. So um, let's go for it. <laughs> uh, we'll take it from the top real quick. Um, so what we did, we got the children to, to play against me in top trumps this morning. Um, so children, you can uh, do it again. Uh, here we go. Top trump number one. It's, we've gone old school. We've gone rockets. And so one of you gets to guess the, um, not guess, what's it? Choose, choose the category. You, remember, you know how to play top trumps, right? Don't need to explain it to you guys. Um, uh, someone on this side to choose the rocket category. Halo. Halo. What is a halo? No, halo. Payload, I was going to say. Uh, payload, 120,000 kilograms. Here we go. And my one, can I beat it? Uh, not even close. <laughs> I don't even know if my one wins on anything, actually. Development completed. It surely earliest date would win for that. Anyway, um, there we are. One nil to you guys. Next one, we're going for tanks over to this side. One of you gets to choose the category. You have got a rather rubbish French tank. Speed. Speed. Speed, Speed. Speed is the uh, consensus. 60 kilometers per hour. Let's see what my one is. Ah, oh, you have one. You have one. 2 0. Good job. I fixed the last one. Uh, just to kind of reclaim some, some consolation score. Okay, the last one aircraft carrier. Um, and the point this morning was holding up an aircraft carrier. Is there a more. Is there a larger? I don't think so. Symbol of power in the world as it stands, the aircraft carrier. You know, if you're going to aim for world peace, then you're going to need a big fleet of aircraft carriers, right, to just dominate. That's, that's sort of how it seems to work. Um, and next to the aircraft carrier, my trump card was this. Come on. And the very serious points, of course, I was suggesting this morning that the cross of Christ is a whole other different sort of powerful. Like the the laughter is a whole other different sort of powerful to the screams. The cross of Christ comes in and truly, for those with eyes to see it, and and it's eyes of faith as well, um, smashes to the ground. It's it's, it's playing a different game. It's it's talking something um, different here. Let's get into it. And I, I... Struggling here, but I, if you've just walked in and you, um, not, you know, 
haven't grown up in church, and you sort of first time you walked in, this is absolutely crazy to think that um, the cross of Christ, this this little moment, this little torture, murder instrument, um, this this death, could compete with an aircraft car. What what is he talking about? <laughs> you know, I, I get that 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 is because there's nothing. This is like utterly. I'm talking about power. Like, what's the most powerful thing? There's nothing. This is the picture, the epitome of powerlessness, right? You're pinned down to a cross. You can literally go nowhere. The only thing you can do is die. That's what you're supposed to do. That was, that was it. And yet, could it be, could it just be that at this moment when the might of the Roman Empire was just standard, smashing down another pretender uh, with a clear demonstration of the cold logic that might is right, that the strongest arm wins and they're killing down, nailing down the Son of God. Could that just be in that moment the very victory of God? Revealing something deeper than the logic, the cold logic of might is right, that the biggest arm wins. Something truer than any authority that is established by force and violence. Something more fundamental, something called love. Could it just be that this moment revealing the stunning love of God? Could it be that the most powerful force in the world was on display just then? The most powerful force for getting results, for for making something happen, for getting things done. To heal a human heart, to change us, to, to captivate our hearts, to open up new worlds of possibility for us, to transform a situation in a way that brute force and violence could never do. Can you see it? Has he captivated your heart yet? Have you said yes to this radical love, this radical offer of grace and forgiveness and healing? Have you said yes to his invitation to follow him? This vocation that Isaiah glimpsed, that Jesus fulfilled, now becomes the vocation of the church. We follow in this rather scary way, the way of the cross. This is our strange symbol that we kind of gather around. Got one up over there. What does it mean to follow in this way, to unite around this one? It basically means, off the back of what we're talking about tonight, that we, we walk trusting in this deeper sort of power. So we're not um, there demanding our rights. We are not those who um, uh, lash. It's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? When someone you know, uh, attacks you or cuts you up or... Um, tries to screw you over to be like, idiot, straight back. There's something like deep within us. And is that just so... How productive is that? So what we're talking about is a power of love that can interrupt some of those cycles of violence and retaliation and reaction that don't go anywhere and the only legacy of them is death and destruction. When you look back at the legacy of your life so far, what do you see? 
is there healing in your wake? Are people blessed to have come up against your life? And broken people will come up against our lives, all of our lives. We're broken people as well. We all are. We all need to receive this healing and then we find the resources to be the sorts of people who can, when the stuff comes crashing into us, we can not jump straight back with, yeah, yeah, you idiot. Instead, we can whoo, take it and look to love in a strong, different, arresting, creative, hope-filled, transformative sort of way. That's the calling. I think of a friend of mine, Gordon, um, who uh, had parked around the back of uh, our church in Oxford and um, someone threw a brick through his car window. And, um, and the person who was like, going to tell Gordon was quite nervous about this. Oh, someone's just bricked your car. Uh, and Gordon's instant sort of instinctive reaction was, oh, you know what? Now I've got an enemy to love. <laughs> You know, where does that come from? These are the instincts that we may grow in. Instincts of forgiveness, not of retaliation. Lawsuits are really not our thing, you know. Unless they're standing up for the vulnerable, then uh, they're so our thing. Just read Isaiah. Uh, but the whole, like, you know, oh, what happened to you? God, sue them. You know, this, isn't, this isn't our thing. Our thing is the cross. Our thing is the sort of love that interrupts all those cycles of violence idiot, whatever it is. So who is your enemy? Who is your rival? Where is that problem relationship? Maybe a boss, a colleague, a sibling. And then what possibilities might there be for you to follow the way of the cross in that? What opportunity is there to suddenly do a Gordon, <laughs> to do a Jesus, and look to love? Pray for those who persecute you, said Jesus. Interrupt all those cycles, those predictable, boring cycles of hate. Pray for those who persecute you. Imagine what could be. Violence, retaliation, retribution, that's a zero-sum game. Its legacy is death and destruction. Our game is new creation. May our legacy be life and healing as we look at the wake behind us, as we trust in a different sort of power, the sort that raised Jesus from the grave. Amen. Let's stand.